This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and welcome to another edition of New Books in Systems and Cybernetics, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom Schult from the University of British Columbia. As reader in industrial management in the Adam Smith Business School at the University of Glasgow, Rob Deckers is well positioned to survey the currents of the vibrant systems tradition in the United Kingdom. In his book, Applied Systems Theory, out in its second edition from Springer in 2017, Deckers seeks to augment the valuable work done by soft systems methodology in facilitating the engagement of multiple stakeholders, as well as the achievements of a host of other established cybernetic and systems approaches, with a set of modeling tools more formally rigorous than those previously on offer. By drawing our attention to such factors as the need to keep secondary processes and resources within the boundaries of system models, the importance of a balanced blend of feedback and feed-forward control mechanisms, and the potential for miscommunication between differently focused aspect systems contained within the same organization, Deckers offers the next generation of systems practitioners new techniques for developing the kind of foresight necessary to manage complex human activity systems in an era where the margins for unintended consequences continue to shrink at a seemingly exponential rate. Deckers combines a deep understanding of and respect for the work of previous generations of systemic thinkers with a keen sense of the gaps in systems practice still yet to be adequately filled, making this an ideal textbook for upper-level undergraduate and graduate systems courses. So without any further ado, let's turn to my conversation with Rob Deckers. Rob Deckers, welcome to New Books in Systems and Cybernetics. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you very much for the invitation. (laughs) We will begin with uh, the traditional... um, question on the New Books Network, which is, um, can you tell us a little bit about your background, your intellectual academic journey that led you to uh, an engagement with systems? So, of course, uh, during my study, uh, mechanical engineering, the master's degree uh, at the time, so different than the Bologna structure. Um, Actually, the group that I was studying in was uh, directed at production organization, so systems theory was a big part of that. And so that was my first introduction to systems theory. Then I worked in industry for a number of years. And I could see the difference uh, in terms of approaching and organizing information. So when I returned to academia, that was in 92 after about, I have to calculate there, about six and a half years in industry, I, um, I started to be interested in what was the background. And actually, that helped me then to, to uh, know the book uh, at the very end. So I started to collect notes and look into the uh, background of systems theories that were used at the university. And it was a kind of discovery route as well, that how far it goes back. And at the same time, uh, how exciting it is to use that in terms of sharpening things, but also multidisciplinary, making that people can talk to each other. And yeah, that's part of my work. So I'm doing a lot of uh, multidisciplinary work, mm-hmm. working with computing science, with evolutionary biology, uh, separate from the interest in uh, innovation and operations management as a business school uh, perspective. And systems theories just help you to, I think, be sharper, uh, organize information, understand other disciplines. And, and that's that's how the route was. Terrific. Very Great. Brief. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, so the book is uh, is incredibly in depth and and really really deeply informative and it's it's amazing that it manages to to sort of do at least two things at the same time in that as well as introducing your particular um, contributions in terms of what you're calling applied systems theory it also provides a, a tremendous uh, overview of systems uh, theory in general and its cybernetic roots etc so it's really really um, uh, uh, really, really valuable in all those areas. Can you just give us a, uh, a bit of an outline about the distinct features of applied systems theory 
uh, that, that you uh, want to draw our attention to as, as opposed to some of the other um, wide array of systems thinking that, you know, that you've, you've borrowed from. But what, what is really distinctive about applied systems theory that made you want to write this book and, and really uh, make clear these, uh, these particular ideas and contributions that you're bringing forward? So, so in terms of the uh, contributions, you've got uh, quite a big stream in the UK. Uh, that centered around the soft systems methodology and also what the uh, Jackson, Michael Jackson, has been using at the University of Hull, which is more about the interaction between actors. But it is less fo um, formal about how you describe systems. So it's more or less, this, this is of course an acceleration from making the point, how do you bring uh, different stakeholders together and get their views integrated in a holistic uh, manner? Then at the same time, you've got also the social technical uh, movement, which also has been big in the UK uh, with the Tavistock Institute in London, mining industry, uh, which was the integration of uh, technology and the, and the human aspects uh, as well. But again, these were less uh, formal in their description of systems and in their description of processes. So that is one of the, uh, the the distinct features of the book, that it has a formal, you could call a kind of description language uh, for all kinds of uh, systems. And there have been attempts uh, before, like uh, James Miller, who was an American, uh, living systems, uh, but they have uh, more, more focused on uh, actual organisms rather than on a wider array of, of disciplines. So that, that is one uh, distinct thing. And the uh, second distinct feature, of course, is the, what you already mentioned, the blending of the disciplines that have fueled this interest into systems theories uh, and my keen interest, of course, uh, trying my best to acknowledge all the historic figures uh, in that development. And the third is, of course, the extension to uh, today, because some people like soft systems methodology is part of that. Uh, they have been generating their concepts uh, and stuff up here in the 60s, 70s. But then we've got a whole stream of complex systems, autopoiesis, and all those type of concepts that have been a kind of further development. And also if you look then in, in some, uh, you've got the hierarchical levels of system security of uh, balding. So that takes it just a few levels up. And it is that combination uh, that forms the core of the book. Uh, but that's also, I think, uh, reflected in the order of the chapters. Uh, first, you know, the basic processes and then co complexity is added uh, across the chapters. But f f uh, that's one part of the answer, so it's in, in terms of uh, theory development. The other one, and that's why it is called applied, uh, because as I mentioned it already before, I'm in operation management, innovation management, so I'm also working together with companies and also, of course, with students uh, with teaching. And it is that they can use those concepts in actual solving of cases uh, or in uh, dissertations. In the, in the in American language, the dissertation is called the thesis, so this is a bit confusing for the ones that are listening. Uh, <laughs> there's, still a, there's still an ocean between uh, the States and, mm -hmm. and Canada and, and the UK. Right. So, uh, but it helps them to, you know, model. And uh, some of those uh, modeling are also appearing in uh, the publications. So you can see in some of the publications, uh, like the recent one about group technology, that has some of the modeling uh, in that. So the, the applied is that you can actually, so it's not a theoretical conceptualization, but it actually has a meaning for, for practice. Right. And the third one, which is, has slipped in the second edition, is also that it relates for part to concepts in uh, research methodologies like inductive deductive reasoning, abductive reasoning, uh, uh, generalization, aggregation of information, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. Um, you mentioned already uh, Kenneth Boulding's uh, hierarchy of systems, which uh, seems to be quite central to to a lot of your thinking. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you find um, so attractive about Boulding's hierarchy and the way you weave it into the book? So that goes actually back to something else rather than to the book. Okay. Uh, because I wrote the book after I got my doctoral degree. So there's some particular issues with doctoral degrees in the Netherlands and having an engineering degree, but I just skip on that because that's not so relevant. <laughs> but in that sense, uh, when I started undertaking my doctoral degree, when I was in Delft, yeah, my interest was in organizations. 
And the, in a certain way, uh, the systems theories are, you know, the basic theories are rather static. But that's not the reality, it's dynamic. So I was interested in how do organizations respond to the environment and how do they interact. Okay, so the first one was a professor called Jan Kohlhaas, uh, who pointed me out to Stuart Kaufman about the origins of order. Mm-hmm. So I read that, okay, that made certain sense, but it was a kind of dissatisfaction. But that made the link clear with evolutionary biology. So then I called a guy called Hans Metz in the University of Leiden, and he's in game theories and theoretical evolutionary biology, adaptive dynamics that is called. And so, you know, uh, how can you make sense from evolutionary biology uh, to organizations and apply? So uh, we had a chat in my office because he was so kind to come to my office and have a chat with me in the, at seven o'clock in the evening. I think that lasted somewhere to 10 o'clock, uh, in which I got a short course in evolutionary biology. Of course, then you are confronted with uh, how is that relevant? And the system theory of Bolding is actually the only one who has a kind of, maybe it's not perfect, but a kind of descriptor of these different levels and the complexities that are added in each level. And that brought me to the uh, Kenneth Bolding's system theory. Right. And we will talk a little bit about uh, some of the, the, the challenges you mentioned in the book about applying notions from evolutionary biology to uh, yes. learning organizations is something that you yes. touch on in the, in the later parts of the book, which we'll, we'll get to in a little bit. So, um, so we'll start with just basic language. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your definition of a system? that you're using here, because we obviously shouldn't start by assuming that all people's definitions of systems are equal, and, and, and you start us off with this in the book. So can you tell us a little yeah. bit about this, the, de- the definition of system for applied systems theory? Yeah. So um, the, the, the definition is actually quite uh, simple, because you've got a number uh, of elements, and you've got the relationships between elements, and what you do when you're investigating, this is the key in terms of the book. So when you're investigating a phenomena, whatever that is, you have to isolate a number of elements that belong together, and that's called the uh, system. Then you have internal elements and you have external elements. And the, uh, the system is defined by that set around which you draw a boundary, and then the relationships it has with those external elements directly. All the other things beyond that is the universe. And that has some meaning, because if you think about an organization, and an organization is embedded in the wider social economic environment. And just for the reasoning for today, if you look at it, every company has a certain set of customers out of the total customers that are available. But it is through those customers it gets the information. So if you, Tom, are not part of the relationship and you have certain expectations about products, actually the company won't know what you have because they are not in touch with you. So that is a kind of intricate detail of the definition in the book, that the interaction of a system is to those external elements that are directly connected to the system rather than to all the elements, and that's the difference between a universe and an environment. Right. And so your... um the, this, the, the theory, as I understand it, is, is really based on these finer details of nomenclature, I think, that you bring in different, different yeah. um, uh, parts of the anatomy of systems and the way you name them, as you say, to try and maybe augment soft systems and other methodologies that are good at bringing stakeholders together, but again, to, to really make the modeling robust. So you talk about primary processes, secondary processes, and, and resources, and can you tell yeah. us a little bit about how those work together in your model? It's like an, uh, uh, writing a book. Okay, so we'll just look at the hard copy, uh, so when you hold a book, that's the end product of a process, and the process is, of course, writing. So to do the writing, you need to have input, and the input is then the ideas that you have that are translating in words, whether it's writing a novel or writing a kind of half reference book, textbook, like applied systems theory. So that's a conversion process from ideas and from information into actually structured information. And then you need resources. Uh, that can be the computer, that can be pencil and paper, but also you yourself as a writer. 
and it is the interaction between the information and the, and the ideas and you with your pencil looking at the screen uh, when you're using a computer that creates that book and in that sense and process is a type of interaction now I can't write a book as, as a resource as a writer if I have not developed myself so the development of all my writing skills is a kind of secondary process which facilitates the primary process. Of course, it has to be controlled because when you're talking about a book, you have to write, submit a book proposal and the editor will say, well, there's a deadline. So that then adds a layer, kind of control mechanisms. How are you going to manage the time? So you will uh, divide it in chunks. Uh, you will have a kind of script that you will develop uh, for your book before you start writing, etc., etc. So that's, that's in a way how all those uh, type of different processes uh, hang together. And of course, then an important one is the evaluation, because you might be enthusiastic to write a book. Um, but if you don't have the skills or if it is difficult to transfer the ideas into a book, that might then even end up in the fact that it has to be evaluated, whether you have the capability. So there's also a kind of capability loop you can call. That's not a very formal definition that I use in the book, but you could call it so that you assess your own capability, whether you're able to achieve the aims that you do that. Uh, so that, that's basically the principles. Mm -hmm. And it seems that what your book draws our attention to are the roles that resources play. And if I've, if I've got this right, the processes involved to make sure those resources remain robust and remain available, that often is not always inside the boundary of when we, when we look at what we're looking at, we, we can lose sight of those secondary processes and all of the, all of the things that go on in maintaining and controlling them adequately so that our primary processes can, can be carried yeah. out. Exactly. So that is, you have that, for example, in project management, uh, because if you have a firm that is doing a project, the focus is often on the internal process in the firm, but you need suppliers for whatever reason. So if you look at the boundary only being your own firm, you will talk about contracting. But if you think about, wait a minute, I need to, I need suppliers. So for the project, just for you're modeling every time a system for a specific purpose. So if you're modeling that for a project, actually the suppliers are part of the resources too. And that creates a different view. Now, it can be that internal or external like suppliers don't have the capability to do what they need to do. And then you have to invest in development. That is the uh, secondary process. So if you do that, you will have a wider scope rather than saying to somebody, oh, yeah, that is your responsibility because that's the contract. So this way of thinking in a, you know, in a systematic systems theory way helps you also to develop uh, ideas better and to get everybody involved to make sure uh, that you have the end result. Because if you think again about the project, if you have a contract but the supplier can't deliver, you got nothing. Mm -hmm. And that actually, that actually happened with Boeing in the, in the 90s mm. and with the uh, 787 Dreamliner as well recently, where they had insufficiently integrated uh, the supplier's in, in the 90s in the supply chain, so they were ramping up production and they forgot to tell the suppliers because they didn't see suppliers as part of the system. Mm, right? Yeah. And in the uh, 787, they thought, okay, we can, it was a kind of internet application where they thought, okay, we can outsource, yeah? Again, that is externalizing the suppliers. And then that turned out to be that a, or quite a number of suppliers had said they were capable, but they were actually not capable of delivering. So you can see that how you draw the boundaries and how you see that system of resources can tremendously affect uh, outcomes. And that is the, that's the reason why I'm stressing that quite a bit. Right. And you talk about aggregation strata, different strata of yeah. aggregation. And that seems to be really key to, to making sure we've got this as fulsome a picture of the system as possible. Can you say a little bit about the different types of aggregation strata that you describe? Yeah, so aggregation uh, strata are part of abstraction mechanisms. So you've got uh, three abstraction mechanisms. Uh, one is classification. That's a kind of necessity because if you can't define, for example, um, which nation you belong to, it's difficult to talk about nations. Yeah? Uh, so, so classification go, but then you have to look for mechanisms to explain that. So, so that's, the, that's the next step. 
So the uh, next one is aggregation. And aggregation means not necessarily, so classification can be based on similar information, but you can have different items, components, parts, whatever you want to call it, coming together. So if you think about an airplane, yeah? an airplane has a passenger area and a cargo area. They are very different things. Uh, so in aggregation, they are combined. So it's not necessarily something of the same class. And generalization has to do to what extent you can use conclusions or structures. It's like analogies in a certain way when you found them in one instance and apply it to another instance on one system to another system. Uh, so aggregation is actually not mechanism in itself is part of one of it's one of the three abstraction mechanisms right and you mentioned something uh there's elements there's aspect systems there's just a more and more and more of these layers of uh of, yeah. of uh, analysis can you tell us a little bit about the aspect system because i i found that particularly um interesting uh, in terms of the, again the different ways you can make the analysis even more fine-grained and specific yeah. Usually in the, uh, so I'm referring back to the history, if you look at what is defined, that is actually the subsystems are defined. Mm. Uh, and a lot of terminology in other books, so I'm not, I'm not discrediting other books, of course, they have, everybody has contributed to the advances in systems thinking, but they actually only look at subsystems as they call it. But that's, but you've got two things in a system, and the two things are elements and relationships. So if you think about a bit more mathematical type of mindset, subsystems are applied to elements and aspect systems to relationships. There's only a catch, because again, uh, of course I've been working in, in, in industry, so some of my examples are related to that. Yeah? Um, so if you think about the quality system and the logistics system in a company, they are two different aspect systems. Even if you then look inside companies, they are often delegated to different departments or different functions in an organization. For the total the end product to be delivered to the customer, they have to be brought together because the customer doesn't care what you do internally. <laughs> but the aspect systems are dealt with in a different manner. This also means that if you're going to solve a logistics problem, that you in a way start to ignore the quality problem. So. But the quality problem is not comparable to the logistics because I don't know, I'm not asking for a personal opinion, but some people value delivery time more, logistics, and some people value quality more. So there is also a subjectivity in uh, how the different aspects, the relationships are related to each other in the mind of the stakeholders, the decision makers. So that makes the uh, distinction of uh, aspect systems actually quite necessary to keep that in mind. And obviously, the the uh, level of communication between people involved in various aspect systems, because I've seen organizations where each each area is is entirely focused on maximizing what they see are the indicators yeah. of success in their aspect system, and they end up uh, actually pulling against each other rather yeah. than being able to take a more holistic view of what the system is after. Yeah. So, so if you then. That's why, that's why I see the contribution of systems theories in this way, as, as applied systems theory, that you bring those type of different aspects together and that people can understand a holistic view and better understand also how those aspects are influencing other, knowing that they are quite different. Mm -hmm. um, and that even goes in the organizational structure because, for example, uh, quality decisions you can delegate it to relatively low in the organization where logistics uh, decisions are quite more difficult to assess because of the impact that it has on the system of resources again uh, so, so you need also different capabilities for different aspect systems right but now we're going a little bit further now we're going to talk about design of organizational structure which is an entirely different topic right well first I actually want to jump us over to control mechanisms for a bit if that's yeah. okay uh, yeah, because obviously control mechanisms are, are essential to um, coordinating between these aspect systems and, mm -hmm. and, again, throughout the organizational structure. So you talk about a few different types of control mechanisms. Feedback is the one that is most obvious to us, but, of course, there's feed forward, there's direction. There's, and so can you just talk a little bit about the control mechanisms that you identify and how they can be applied in combination, which to me was one of the really interesting things in the book. Yeah. So if you look, of course, um, at the, 
so th this is not a formal description again. So this is just for today. Yeah. Uh, so of course, as you mentioned, feedback is a quite common uh, mechanism that you use, and that's incorporated in a lot of systems. Even uh, the way we're built as an organism has a lot of feedback. Um, but it is also the, the feed forward um, that allows to respond. But the feed forward has a, a very different response because that uh, that reacts more to the input. And uh, th this is not meant to be uh, appetizing you, but one of the things is that, for example, when we observe food, yeah. our body and our uh, stomach start already working as a, that's a kind of feed uh, forward. So, but feed forward, of course, doesn't do everything. So whether the food is tasty or not tasty or satisfying or not satisfying is not really 100% guaranteed by the feed-forward mechanism. So you need always a kind of feedback as well in combination to compensate for what the feed-forward can do or and can do. Uh, and then, of course, you've got the uh, mechanism of uh, completing uh, deficiency. So I use the um, uh, old, because I think nowadays they've changed a little. The, uh, that was very famous for the Mercedes S-Class uh, luxury cars that actually repairing them after the assembly line that was an area six times bigger than the assembly line <laughs> but disassembling a car of that complexity is more difficult than adding at the end so that is the completing division so again that does something different than feed forward and feedback and then of course you've got the uh, finally regulatory control zone where you uh, you know it's Mercedes maybe didn't do is evaluate whether their process is capable of producing you know, higher consistency and quality. Um, so, so that makes it all those four mechanisms are complementary to each other and have different functions. And relying on one is is folly. Obviously, you, like you say, that feed forward is really important. It can save you time, but without a feedback uh, in the background uh, yes. to make those kinds of corrections in in, in process. Yeah, that's exactly. So if you if you look, you know, of course we have set map, so it doesn't work today anymore. But if you would look at the map, okay, I have to go there, and you would put your uh, st steering wheel of the car in that direction. Yeah, of course, when you're driving on the road, it's a bit tilted, so it doesn't maybe go in the direction that you have in mind. So you cannot fit forward; would only tell you, okay, you have to go this way. In this way, the steering wheel has to be rotated to reach your uh, uh, destination. So the f feedback course uh, compensates for that. Yeah. Right. Indeed right about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so obviously there's a lot of talk in certainly in cybernetics and systems as well about autopoiesis and you and you talk a lot about autopoiesis. <laughs> it's well covered in this book. But you you really make the strongest case I've seen for the importance of allopoiesis. Yeah. And the notion that um, and maybe this is in some way tied to the difficulties applying models of biological organisms to learning organizations that leads yeah. to this um, clarification that you, you want to make that the allopoietic model is actually in a sense more appropriate and more helpful when we're talking about learning organizations, if I've read you correctly. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about about allopoiesis and, and why that's why it's true that that is is uh, the more appropriate um description to use yeah so just for the description again today i'm just yep. mentioning that because of course um you can use different examples in different circumstances yeah so let's say just for the sake of the argument that your husband and wife all right mm -hmm. so in a way when we create children we're creating a copy of ourselves whether we like that or not <laughs> whether that goes exactly the way we have in mind that's something else yeah um, but if you, uh, by accident, uh, produce two kids, then it is possible they are not exactly the same. So in biological terms, one will be more fit than the other in terms of the environment. And that determines then the chances of survival rate. Now, that doesn't apply to the class of organizations. Because if you have organizations and social structures, you have a firm. You create, create a new version of the firm, but you, you can't create two versions of the firm because you're not going to split it for that reason. So that is why the allopoiesis uh, puts in is a better description, and that's the latter, than the autopoiesis uh, creating two kids. So that puts in a limitation to why 
a mutation of a firm organization or a social structure uh, is fit for the environment, yes or no. This is compensated then in, uh, in t- terms of organization by the capability for foresight. Mm. Social structures that are natural, how ants interact, for example, with each other, that's more biological. So that doesn't, although it has also autopoietic elements, it is less suitable uh, description for that. But that again brings us back to the uh, level of uh, the, the system theories of uh, bowling. Because in a way that tells also that some parts of a lower level are suitable descriptions for higher levels, but not necessarily all the phenomena at higher levels can be described by lower levels. So, okay, so that is the, um, and certainly the higher levels in, in, involving yet more allopoietic type of phenomena rather than autopoietic. But I think a lot of certain academics don't understand fully the difference between the two. Mm. Uh, while it has a profound influence, as you notice, in terms of thinking. So, is there some other other things you could tell us about and further that description about the difference between the two? So it is clearer for for those who are struggling with that. And again, it's obviously real uh, to me. I, I read it as really important to this book. And yeah. like I say, this is the most um, the mo- most uh, rigorously I've seen this presented in any of the systems yeah. reading that I've done. So yeah, it has it has profound uh, influences because the uh, the difference between autopoietic and uh, allopoietic is that, l- like the example with the kids, you could produce quite a number of kids to see which is the best fit. But if you have a, a mutation of a social structure, you have only one time a chance to do that. So actually, you have to be you no know, sure or more certain about what the outcomes are going to be, while at the same time looking in the future. So you cannot do random generation of mutations, you have to do a directional um, mutation, which increases the risk. Um, If you look, for example, in new product development, they have some methods that counter that uh, for parts, but that is specific for project management, new product development, but it is actually if you think about it, that means the element of foresight is extremely important. And when I look, for example, at what we're teaching students, we're not teaching them, for example, sufficiently, if we want to make them successful leaders, how you can use foresight to make more meaningful mutations of social structures that are also meeting the interests of all the stakeholders. So in that sense, it relates also to uh, how we as a society create ourselves. And is that one of the goals of your applied systems theory as a tool that we're going to enable these leaders of the future, as you say, to to be able to use this kind of robust modeling as a way to understand and to and to further develop their skills and foresight? I think so. Yeah. I think so. I think that we, um, these. Uh, so, so I'm not not I'm not complaining about anything here yet. But so, sometimes, if you think about the systems theories and the modeling that is required, some of our models in uh, business and management studies are, for example, uh, extremely uh, simple. Um, you get also the I was just having a discussion with the doctoral student in the school of computing, and you get the same. It's about optimization rather than creating what is called evolvability or sustained beyond sustained fitness beyond uh, uh, the direct you know short-term goals and that long-term thinking is actually uh, what drives a society if you are in the short-term cycle which is not assessing the impact of foresight or not having the capability of foresight you might do something that yields something today, but you might have to change, change your mind the next day because it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And those changes, if you, uh, that was my interest with my doctoral study. The effort that is required for every change is tremendous, so you don't want it to be wasted. Mm-hmm. And creating that capability of having that foresight and then combining that with short-term cycles like in, in evolutionary biology, we don't change overnight. but through generations we change. So if you can have those generations, uh, those mutations, then in a shorter cycle, more meaningful, you can also adapt them more than to how the environment is, is changing. So that, that's a bit the background of mm-hmm. uh, the thinking as well. And I think I think back to what we were talking about in terms of an awareness of those secondary processes and trying to keep them in view 
would be an important tool to developing that kind of foresight as well. That is, as one is making decisions, forecasting what one might do uh, down the road, um, if one is not factoring in potential uh, side effects within uh, secondary processes or the impact on resources, for instance, those are some things that it, without um, bringing those into the picture, one's foresight is going to be limited. So I can see directly how this uh, applied systems theory can, can enhance that. Yeah, exactly. You can see that often when you interact with, uh, with organizations, uh, but also in our social structure, um, that we're not really equipped to think about or to talk about it even. Mm. Uh, hence, the impact is always short term. Because if you, even if you look at today, you know where we are with the environmental incidents. This is something that was already happening in the 60s. That were uh, that was clear, and perhaps even before uh, people were thinking about that. And still, we're confronted with the fact that we have not acted on it. If you would have a, a better long-term vision, you would have already created more you know, what we call now to, nowadays a sustainable uh, society. And now we're way back on that, and it's catching up. Uh, but then you see that the effort is, uh, is tremendous, uh, which then hampers the, uh, also the implementation of improvements. So you got it in Glasgow, and because of course I'm at the University of Glasgow, uh, that was the uh, Council of the City proposed to ban all diesel buses in the city. But they wanted to do that quickly because the, uh, it's one of the most polluted areas in, uh, in the UK. But then you see the short-term thinking because if they would have thought about this, that this pollution didn't happen overnight. This happened already 20 years ago. Yeah? But now they want to implement it in, in a short time frame, in maybe a few years. But that means for the companies, they have to invest in all those buses that they don't have. And some of the technologies may be not, not available. And they have then also the uh, maintenance of those buses. And then you talk about secondary processes. Yeah? So people are not used how to maintain them. So you have new skills for uh, engineers, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And we don't have them. Uh, so this long-term thinking is something that is really, really important, not only for making a firm more profitable, but also for society. Yeah, I mean, here in Canada, we're having very, very, you know, real pitched battles around uh, pipeline expansions for uh, oil and gas. And there's many, many things uh, to consider inside these these um, struggles and, and uh, conflicts within Canada, including indigenous, uh, indigenous rights and, and uh, an important part of it. But this idea of um, failure to diversify economies earlier uh, then suddenly you're at this tipping point where it's an emergency now. We've got to make a mm -hmm. radical turn. And mm -hmm. as you suggest, uh, you know, um, it's, it's the, the amount of social upheaval that potentially could have been avoided or at least mitigated to some degree um, mm -hmm. has not, has it, you know, it's, we're past that point now. And uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of pain to go around as we, as we quickly try and make the shift to a, to a more carbon-neutral kind of uh, – economy. Um, so I'm going to ask you a question that's not covered in your book, but since our conversation has sort of drifted in this direction and yes. I'm, we're interested in feedback cycles um, and it's just some of the things I've read in some other design thinking kind of literature, to what degree do you think the feedback cycle of the quarterly report for shareholders is one of the things that locks us into this kind of short-term thinking that that's a that particular feedback cycle where the indicators are profits and it's this quarterly thing and so many of the things we're dealing with, like the environment, they operate on very, very different types of feedback cycles. How much role does that play in your view that locks us into some of this inability to think more holistically? Well, of course, we're drifting away, as you rightfully noted, from the book a bit, so, but that's no problem. But in a way, you can see that because... Um, if you look at the mechanisms, of course, we respond to uh, mechanisms that we have installed. But then you have to go back. There's actually Meadows. Um, mm -hmm. She has written better about that uh, than I did, okay? Although I've given the overview in the book about that. And, of course, that has to do with the type of interventions that you can have. But you see the idiocracy of it. Um, for example, if you want to have a three-month quarter, uh, three uh, quarterly report uh, from a company, then you should have inventory low. And can actually see that in the UK, that in supermarkets around the three-month cycle, 
there is less inventory available. Now, this doesn't make sense because I don't think that you're less hungry on the 31st of March than you are on the 1st of April, <laughs> right? <laughs> but somehow supermarkets seem to think like that. And it doesn't help also because then, of course, um, if you do that, then the companies that are supplying you and then you go back to the holistic thinking, they are following the cycle. So you got the beer, it's a kind of the uh, beer game. Yes. The bullet effect. Yeah. So then, of course, they have to catch up, which increases the cost also. And that is one of the uh, amazing things for me still. You know, so why do you have those three months cycles, which are not necessarily bad, but the way they are used? Yeah. Uh, is it? And in the way systems are structured, what kinds of behavior do they incentivize? Um, yeah. You know, and, and if they're not based on, like you say, this is in, not sufficiently in touch with the environment or with resources or with secondary processes. Yeah. I, I heard once a story, I mean, but that I can't name the companies because this will be uh, publicly available. Right. But this was a uh, quite big company. Uh, one CEO met at the bar another CEO of another company, which was related but not fully related. So then they obviously, that is the story, talked to each other uh, what their bonuses were, and both were nearing the end of the term. And in the beginning of that term, they had promised to double the sales. Both were equally sized. So in the bar, they decided to merge. They merged the companies, they left the companies, they got the huge bonuses in terms of hundreds of millions of dollars. And two years later, the company was, the merged company was almost near bankrupt. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, this is not a very, and in the Netherlands also, when we moved to Scotland, there was a kind of, um, so this profit thinking is not always good. There was a kind of kindergarten company. Mm. So preschool, pre-kindergarten, uh, nursery, as, as you would call it in the, in the UK. And they were actually quite uh, successful because what they had done is that they had invested in their staff. So they had relatively qualified people working for them. And they had bought over the course of time uh, a strategic location. So um, if you would go into a city like Amsterdam, uh, you would find them on the roads inside going from the highways into the city so that it was strategic location so the parents could drop the kids off, go to the office, and then at night time could easily come back and drive home. Uh, so, so that had been their, of course, simplification of the strategy. But of course, you got the uh, economic cycle, so the value of, of the property went a bit up. Incomes, this investment company, right? They bought it. They split the company right away into two. One for operations of the nurseries and one for the property. And the property was charging a fee to the nurseries, but based on the commercial price of that time, which was way higher than they had purchased it for. They sold off the, uh, the properties for a huge margin uh, because, okay, that led them, of course, that the operations was too expensive, so they had to cut down on staff, they got less qualified staff, so the whole company was basically on the verge of bankruptcy within five or six years. Now, from an investor will say, uh, you know, today was McDonald's was in the, uh, with the straws, yeah, in, mm -hmm. the, in the news. How can a share and share, a stakeholder, shareholder, be against the ban of straws? if they are causing environmental pollution. But in our concept, this is obviously accepted, but from a holistic way of thinking, separate from the strategy that McDonald's is thinking, it's just ridiculous. However, the shareholders are not accountable. <laughs> yeah. I think if you would be able to, you know, get them into a court for the actions that they did, uh, firing people, mm -hmm. depriving them of their income, depriving households of their possibilities for nurseries, I think then the game would be quite different. But that is holistic thinking. Yeah. 
and it still comes down to feedback. Those are different types of ending up in court is a kind of feedback, yeah. <laughs> and then and it's going to prompt one to take corrective action. Feedback exactly. <laughs> no category. <laughs> yeah, and it's gonna it's gonna prompt certain types of corrective action. We would hope. So thank you. This has been a, this digression has been actually really really enlightening in terms of thank you for sharing these specific examples and uh, and seeing how these system structures and the way they're they're literally wired. Um, you know, creates leads to, to certain types of behavior, which was is what makes systems thinking and systems analysis and theory so important. Uh, as you move towards the end of the book, you introduce the necessity of uh, thinking in complex adaptive systems to deal with gaps in cybernetics and more traditional systems theories when it comes to dealing with networks. Can you tell us a little bit about those gaps and 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 how you think complex adaptive systems uh, can help? Uh, of course, if you look at um, so, so over the course of time, it has been in the beginning a bit relatively static the way of thinking about systems. Uh, otherwise, how can you start? We have to start somewhere. Although the dynamic aspect was already captured very much in the beginning. So the, the uh, so the behavior of agents in a system, and an agent is then a kind of system with its own elements and with its own relationships. Of course, it's not a uh, has linear behavior, and that's where the complex adaptive systems uh, kick in. Now, you can have a single agent evo and evaluate how that behaves, but agents act in relationship to each other, and then and you go back to the aspects, you know, and, and maybe uh, one agent uh, has a different view on the aspects than the other agent, and that uh, causes a quite complex behavior. That is not the same as um, and a misunderstanding that is sometimes made by the number of elements and relationships. Because, of course, that creates the conditions for complex behavior, but that is not the same as complex adaptive behavior. Um, and I think that there we have not really taken full advantage of the possibilities that those theories uh, bring us. Mm. If that is possible, um, then you would be able to better, you know, develop scenarios, and then you go back again to this foresight, long-term vision. Um, because if you can understand how a system reacts in terms of agents having different linear, non-linear behavior, uh, of course, then you can predict better what the impact is of uh, specific actions. And you see that, that sometimes in society, if you go society being complex adaptive system, that sometimes the measures that are taken are having the counter effect. Um, and actually, uh, an interesting uh, one is uh, actually pollution, um, the cars, because in the beginning of the 20th century, I don't know if you're aware of that, uh, cars were seen as a solution to an environmental problem. Mm. You're, you're, no, this is no, yeah. Of course, at that time there were horses. Yes, cars and horses. So the horses, of course, uh, they have their own metabolism. Yes, they do. And input and, and input is output. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> so their out, their so part of their output was, of course, causing uh, uh, you know so, some pollution in the streets. Mm. Well, some is an understatement. Quite yeah. a bit, of course, with the growing economy, it's only getting worse. Mm. So cars were cleaner than horses. Mm. Yes, in, along a certain aspect, I guess, right? Yeah. yeah. And now, yes, and now yeah. we're thinking that cars are actually uh, quite more polluting than any other. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, so we're moving towards the end here. What I wanted to talk about was. You, you talk about the steady state model, which I think most of our listeners are probably acquainted with and they understand, and then the breakthrough model. The idea, you know, when are we using um, uh, negative feedback to keep, to maintain a sort of homeostatic uh, situation, and when are we trying to grow, change, move yeah. a system, and the, the delicate dance that has to be done between steady state and breakthrough models. Uh, and uh, can you tell us just a little bit about... Um, about what, what we can take away from your book in terms of the relationship between those models and, um, and how we might better facilitate um, sort of the, the oscillation between them. Yeah. So the breakthrough model, is if, if you look at the lowest level, of course, you've got an operational process like uh, writing a book. 
Um, so if we go back to that example in the very beginning. But then that is based on the description as books were made in the old time. So if we go back to paper and pencil and the writer. But now we got, of course, the Internet that creates a different structure. So I'm not saying that I'm going to do this for my next book. But you could, you know, uh, but you don't have to write it on a uh, piece of paper and you can adapt the text. About, so when you deliver to a publisher, it's cleaner than all the notes that you make in your handwritten uh, uh, pages. But also because of the Internet, uh, there's interaction with users is possible, which you otherwise didn't have. So that creates different structures, and you need a model to change those structures, and that's what the breakthrough model is doing in a kind of structured uh, way. Um, and that is that is possible because I've worked with companies, and one of the companies didn't have some parts of this uh, breakthrough model, and did not understand that they have to assess the changes that had to be implemented on how it impacts on the operational uh, processes. At the same time, it, the breakthrough model has a number of processes itself, and they can be regulated as kind of steady-state models. So if you have, for example, going back to the uh, com uh, example of companies, annual revision of strategy can be for part described by the steady-state model because it's a recurrent process. But the outcomes, how it affects the operational process, that's not a recurrent process. So that is the uh, main link between the two models. So you uh, can, of course, uh, link non-recurrent processes. Uh, that's called in the second edition non-programmed uh, decisions mm -hmm. with the recurrent processes which, which have uh, programmed decisions. Right. Well, uh, you've been very generous with your time, and it is in the evening where you are right now, and I'm imagining you wouldn't mind wrapping up your workday. So, um, well, the, the good thing is in Scotland, uh, the sunset is ra relatively late. Right, yeah. So the day has not ended for us yet. Yes. Um, That's, yes. But the last question, you mentioned what you might do with your next book, which takes us to our, our traditional final question, which is uh, what are you working on now? Okay, so at the moment um, the, I'm working with a publisher on a book, uh, Innovation Management and New Product Development, so that incorporates and builds for part on the systems theories as well. Uh, but that's a slightly different discipline than the systems theory one, although I have, I'm leaning heavily on the applied systems theory book as well. So that is um, my, big, uh, my big project at the right. moment. So in September, hopefully, uh, the book is available. Um, and this will be for engineers because the uh, innovation management and new product development engineers have different views about that. Mm. Uh, they want to have more tangible uh, descriptions of methods and tools. Well, I think we've all benefited, though, from the degree of uh, you mentioned in the in the early parts of your book that you are going to bring in certain elements of what are considered more hard systems thinking in terms of the modeling processes. And I think your yeah. book does a wonderful job of helping us uh, concerned with social systems, being able to, to use some of those insights uh, and combine them with things, as you mentioned, like soft, soft systems methodology in ways that we can still um, make more robust models while at the same time not losing sight of the, the human element in the kind of stakeholder uh, conversations that we need to have. And that's also written in the book, model is a model, but it is never reality. Yes. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much, Rob Deckers. Uh, we appreciate your time and, and wish you the best of luck uh, with your upcoming projects. Thanks again for joining us. Yeah. Th thanks for the uh, interview. I really enjoyed talking to you, John. Thank you. Thank you.